Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I should probably do a, uh, a countdown of the number of days that we're in Groundhog Day of electoral purgatory. It's been more than two weeks since the election, and it feels like every day is sort of like the same thing. No, the president's not conceding. Yes, he's tweeting out uh, batshit crazy conspiracy theories. So here we are. So uh, we are joined today uh, by a first-time guest on the on the podcast, although not a stranger, Brendan Buck, who is a former spokesperson for Speaker John Boehner and Paul Ryan and the guru of Georgia politics, joins us on the podcast. He was with us on the live stream on election night. So first of all, uh, welcome, Brendan. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I don't know that I would ever really call the guru of Georgia until election night, but I'll take it. Well, the reason I want to, I mentioned that is we, you were on our live stream on election night and were saying that the Joe Biden was going to win Georgia at a time when it sure didn't look that way. And I actually during during the conversation, I had to jump off the live stream and was did an MSNBC hit. Don't tell anybody this. OK, because this is kind of creepy. But so I did an MSNBC hit with Al Sharpton who explained why Biden wasn't going to win Georgia. And he was really down because he didn't think that the black vote had turned out in Fulton County and everything. And so I, I came back and I thought, well, I mean, obviously the Reverend Al, you know, must, must know what's going on in Georgia. But you, Brendan Buck, you are correct about Georgia. So I want to talk about that. OK, yeah. so before we get into this, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out, are we in an episode of Veep, House of Cards, The West Wing or Game of Thrones? What do you think? Oh, it's always closer to Veep. I mean, that's true in in normal circumstances, um, but there's just so much incompetence going on. Everyone always makes the mistake of thinking that there is a plan, there is a strategy, there is some conspiracy that is cooked up and they need to be really worried about it. And nine times out of 10, in normal politics, that's not the case. That is, you know, 99 times out of 100 with Trump, that is the case. Yeah, um, you have to remember these guys are, you know, the C team, the D team. They don't know what they're doing. Um, and, and certainly they've demonstrated that over and over and over and over again. Um, you know, it's certainly damaging. And I think it's going to be damaging in Georgia, as, as I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but it's uh, it's embarrassing how, how bad they are at even trying to pretend like they have a plan. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're thinking that it's like the the night walkers are coming as one version when, in fact, it's Rudy Giuliani. And <laughs> just follow Rudy Giuliani uh, arguing before the federal court. And, and you realize that it is it is farce. I mean, that, that's part of the problem is, is that people are are worried. Are we, are we in the midst of this massive tragedy or coup or is this just absolutely ridiculous and I mean, I, I, I will admit I kind of toggle back and forth between the two. But but it, whenever I reflect that Rudy Giuliani is in charge of this effort, I go, OK, I, you know, I, I, I need to spend more time on Veep, less time on Game of Thrones. It's something that I actually tweeted this, uh, I don't know, a week and a half ago when he popped up at a press conference. I was, they're not actually putting Rudy Giuliani in charge of this. I didn't think they were. And it turns out now, in fact, yes, indeed, he is in charge. Um, yeah, I guess he, he was in court yesterday for the first time in 30 years. Yeah, and it showed. That's, that's insane. Um, and he's clearly demonstrated that he's, he's insane. So, you know, I don't think we should ignore what's going on. The stakes are, are super high. You know, as folks say, even a, a low risk probability event with these high stakes should be taken seriously. Um, but I do think 
the probability of success is, is near zero, um, both on the merits and the fact that they don't exactly have the sharpest tools in the shed uh, attacking it. Yeah, the, the, the short-term prospects are, I, I think, slim and none. I mean, you know, spoiler alert here in Wisconsin, where they're starting a recount, it's not going to change anything despite all the sort of the kabuki dance that's that's going on here. On the other hand, there is real damage. I mean, there there, there is real damage long-term to faith in our institutions. If there is no transition, the possibility of undermining the, the fight against the pandemic is very real. So, you know, as as farcical as this is, I mean, there are there's there is there is damage and that that damage could last for decades and people could die as a result of it, which normally is is hyperbolic, but seems like descriptive at the moment. Yeah, you know, we often talk about the threats to democracy and then sometimes it, it can feel a little overstated. Um, but, you know, we, we, we look at, you know, what people, uh, bad actors around the world are trying to do. I, I honestly think what the president is doing is doing more damage to faith in democracy than anything that Putin yeah. did over, uh, you know, five, four or five years. And, and that sounds hyperbolic, but you look at data coming out and surveys coming out and people, Republicans in particular, so it's, it's self-defeating in, in, in its own right. But Republicans, you know, 77% think that the election was stolen. That's crazy. You know, it's not as though there's a, a dispute that is based in any reality. It's just pure fiction that, that they're, they're tweeting out and, and, you know, and throwing out at press conferences. But the fact that that many people think that, that has lasting damage. Uh, yeah. and, and I think will not only uh, hurt the country, but again, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt the party. It's going to hurt himself. Um, but th- this goes back to, to prove the point. There's never a plan here. There's never a strategy involved. He's just doing whatever feels good in the moment. Consequences be damned. Well, here's the, the you, you've seen the uh, the story in the Washington Post this morning. Uh, President Trump has abandoned his plan to win re-election by disqualifying enough ballots to reverse President-elect Joe Biden's wins in key battleground states, pivoting instead to a goal that appears equally unattainable delaying a final count long enough to cast doubt on Biden's decisive victory. So, okay, he, he clearly has, has, you know, cast doubt on it, but, but I mean, what, what, what is the end game here now for, for Trump and the Republicans? I don't think there is an end game. You, you, you remember, again, there is no strategy. There is no long-term plan. What you have left are the, the hangers on and the, the collection of Trump folks who really have nothing left to lose. Um, their entire existence is is him at this point. Um, you know, the, his, his campaign staff, Rudy Giuliani. Um, it will be a, a rude awakening when they wake up in the real world in two months and, and he's not in the White House. Now, Trump, of course, is not going away, but, you know, they're grasping at whatever they can to survive. And that means day to day, just win. You know, I, I don't think they are winning, but you, you know, you try to win new cycle to new cycle. Um, I, every new so-called strategy you hear feels more and more far-fetched. In Rudy Giuliani's uh, filing before the court yesterday, uh, they jumped straight from disputing, uh, you know, ballots to asking the judge to overturn and award all of the electoral votes in Pennsylvania to Donald Trump, like crazy. <laughs> Like yeah. the, the audacity of doing that is remarkable, but you know, they're throwing anything they can. It's, it, you know, they don't think it's going to work, 
but uh, they have no other place to go. So, hey, let's try it. Why not? No matter how crazy it sounds. Uh, okay, so let me bounce this off you because I, I was thinking about this this morning. I wrote my my newsletter. And by the way, if you're a Bulwark Plus uh, subscriber, you, you you got this already. And if you're not a Bulwark Plus subscriber, you, you, you can. And I was thinking about it that right now, and I, I know this sort of sounds like Groundhog Day again, you know, well, Republicans are sticking with him. They're not breaking with him. But it strikes me that right now, Republicans have the easiest possible off-ramp from Trump. I mean, if, if there was ever a moment to put country over party, this is it. And acknowledging the results of an election and endorsing peaceful transfer of power is the lowest possible bit of low-hanging fruit, isn't it? I mean, that's... It, it, it is strange that we're living in a moment where that seems that's pretty edgy to acknowledge that. But I mean, there's this national this national crisis that requires a competent transition. And as you point out, Trump lost. He's a lame duck and he's acting like a crazy man. So given all of these things, and given the fact that Republicans are actually they ought to be in a good mood right now. Right. I mean, they you know, they, they picked up seats in the House. Uh, they got their Supreme Court nominees. Nominees looks like they're going to hold on to the the, the Senate. Joe Biden is not coming in with a big socialist agenda. He can't. He's not going to be able to pack the courts. He's not going to be able to kill the filibuster. He's not going to be able to enact the Green New Deal. So this would seem to be the perfect moment for Republicans to say, OK, we just got to do the right thing here. We, we lost the election. Let's move on. Let's have a transition. Really, why aren't they taking this moment? Because if they don't do it right now, you know, they're going to be held hostage by Donald Trump forever. So give me your take on this. Yeah, I, I think they probably realize they are going to be held hostage to him forever. And and, and I think that is what um, has colored the last few years. It goes back to the point I made earlier. 77% of Republican voters think the election is stolen. It is not that they are afraid of Trump. And this is a subtle distinction. They're afraid of their constituents who are in love with Trump. Right. And, and, they, and they go home and they hear, are you fighting for Trump? Why aren't you fighting for him? Why are you surrendering? You know, he says that there's enough votes to overturn it. Why aren't you pursuing that? What are you doing to help him? And when that's what you hear every day, and these are the people who send you to Washington, they're actually acting quite rationally politically. Their incentive politically is to stick by him, not because they think that uh, he's a particularly smart or charismatic or a good president. But it's their voters. And until that changes, until voters stop being obsessed with him and, and following anything he says and does, that's not going to change. So whether he's president or not, uh, they're, they're still going to have to follow his lead. They're still going to have to make crazy claims. Look, I, I, mm -hmm. I will say in defense of, of some senators, um, I think they realize that he's powerless. They realize that there's also nothing they can do to make him stop. And look, I, I tell you, mm -hmm. firsthand, you can only tell him you know, the, do the right thing so many times and, and it, it just goes out one ear and out the other. Um, he just doesn't care. And they know that. So they know that if they come out and, and insist that, uh, you know, he's lost and should shut up, it's not going to do anything. So it's like one of those you gain very little because it's not going to change, change what he does. And politically, they know it will hurt them. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I know you've given a lot. You've probably given a lot of thought to this, but. I don't remember this kind of passion for any of the presidents, Bush, either President Bush or even for Ronald Reagan. It, what, you know, when, when you're sitting around and going, what what is the hold that Donald Trump has on the voters? Because I think you're absolutely right about this. There is this passionate support and in the alternative reality and Fox News, and the media and stuff only goes part way to explaining this because I haven't seen this phenomenon before. At least not yeah. in this country. So, what 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 is the what is the secret sauce 
that Donald Trump has for these voters who will crawl through glass and, you know, broken glass and walk through fire for a guy that a lot of us look at and go, this is this this guy's a nightmare, but they think he's the guy. Yeah, I, I think some of it, I have thought a lot about this. I think some of it is him and some of it is us. And when I say us, I mean sort of the Republican Party at large. Um, him, you know, it's an absolute shamelessness to basically tell people what they want to hear, no matter what is true or not. Um, and what we have learned, and you don't need to just look at Donald Trump, you look at our whole media ecosystem, there is a market for people uh, being told what they want to hear and believe what they want to believe. And when you have no regard for what's true or what, what's based in reality, and you just feed people what they want and you tell them who's to blame for their problem, uh, that's powerful. And his ability to get attention and speak directly to people uh, is, is powerful. I also think he has tapped into a part uh, into voters' uh, desire to take on some issues that Republicans, I think generally, and this is when I say us, have ignored or pushed to the side. There has always been a populist wing to the party, an anti-immigrant, anti-trade, nationalist wing to the party. And we've largely ignored it and pushed it in a corner and assumed that they're going to vote for us. And, 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 but, you know, beyond that, just ignore them. Uh, and it's passionate and we, we run into it from time to time. Whenever we tried to do immigration reform on the Hill, it would rear its head. Uh, and, and trade deals got harder and harder. Uh, but he spoke to those issues and people who feel like they were being ignored finally found somebody who, who who speaks up for them on those things. And I think that was passionate uh, or provided some, some passion and gave energy to, to his, his movement. And then at some point, it just becomes cultural, right? It, everybody wants to be part of it. And we are so tribal and so shirts versus skins uh, that uh, it, it, it closes ranks and everybody wants to be part of it. And you're either with him or against him. And, you know, I think there are, there are a lot of other factors there, there. The people who support the president firmly believe that the left and the media want to end their way of life. Yeah. And whether or not that is based in, you know, just from Trump saying it, or there are other factors that make people believe that, but it's passionately held. And, and if you think that your way of life is threatened and he's going to protect you, that, that sells. There's also a psychological component to this. I agree with everything you just said there, and and I, and I think, by the way, folks on the left don't f have have been slow to recognize that cultural aspect, including issues of religion and religious freedom, and how that plays into all of this. Uh, which is why you're hearing Tom Cotton on the floor of the Senate talking about how the left wants to destroy Thanksgiving or something, or whatever it was he was talking about yesterday. But there's also this psychological component, which is that people become psychically invested in someone. And it seems that the harder things get for them or the more they, I don't know, our, our fence, I'm talking about uh, Donald Trump, there's a psychological need to double down on the investment that they have made with him. And and that's one of the components that, that I think I, we haven't seen much in American politics, that it, it is that sometimes the worst he behaves, the more passionate the supporters feel they have to be for his behavior. Do you follow me on that? Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. Um, and, and, and yeah, I mean, look, he's their guy. And when they feel like he is all that stands between them and their way of life, 
and uh, he comes under attack, that's not just an attack on him. That's an attack on you. Yes. Um, and I, obviously there's a large you know, share of it that folks just get a kick out of making, you know, mainstream reporters mad. Um, so, you know, th- I think that that feeds a little bit of because it becomes a bit of a bit of sport. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, look, Republicans have always loved fighting with the media, but he sort of takes it to another level. But I, yeah, I get your point that there, you know, he is the, the, the gatekeeper for your, your culture and your way of life. And if you really, truly believe that you're going to fight for anything and you're going to defend him no matter what, um, cause we're, we are, we are post policy, you know, you no one's looking at him and we are judging his, uh, you know, his his program, his agenda, you're, you know, this is, this is my guy and I'm going to go to bat for him. That That's an interesting phrase because uh, I, I think you come out of the, the traditional politics that thought that politics was about policy. It was about ideas. It was about legislation. And then we suddenly realized, no, it's really, it's not, we are in a post-policy world. It is about identity. It is about attitude. It is about tribal loyalty. Um, and I, I have to admit that that was one of the things that where I think, you know, I didn't see that coming um, and, until it was too late. So let's talk a little bit about Georgia. OK, so tell me, first of all, tell me about uh, you, 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 your first job out of uh, your first job in politics was for Congressman Tom Price in Georgia. You know, Georgia politics. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the secretary of state there, uh, Raffensperger, and, and, and what he has and, and and how he ended up in the position that he's in right now. I mean, I mean the, the the posture that he's in right now. Because my sense is that he was a pretty much regular Republican, conservative Republican, and now he's what he's a, he's a complete pariah in the Republican Party. Do you know him at all? I don't know him at all. You know, I think he's a he's a relatively new face down there. Um, you know, as a Secretary of State typically is. Um, you know, he's not a, a longtime politician. Um, but he has been, <laughs> he's been my hero of, of late. Uh, look, they, they have, they've come directly at him and basically told him, you need to say you screwed up this election. <laughs> you know, this guy spent two years preparing for an election, uh, and, and it was carried out, I think, uh, as, as well as any state in the country. And they're coming at him directly and saying there was fraud everywhere. The, the system was broken. There were voting machines that didn't work. All nonsense. And what is he supposed to do? Sit there and say, yep, you got me. I screwed up. You know, when he didn't. Um, and so, uh, yeah, he's a relatively normal Republican. Uh, I'm, I'm, he says he voted for Trump. I don't really know, um, you know how populist he actually is. Um, but he finds himself in the position of having to defend himself and nobody else will. And uh, I, I, I cannot tell you how much I admire how the two senators came directly at him and he gave them, gave it right back to them and said, look, I'm not taking any of this crap. I'm not giving you an inch. Um, and I, and I know, you know, I've been talking to some folks who are, who are working with him and, and that is I think going to be, continue to be his posture. Um, he, you know, they're making threats at him. You know, they're telling anybody who, who talks to him that, you know, you're, you're building, you're burning bridges. You're never going to work in politics. And, and he's just saying, I don't care. That's fine. You know, I was hired to do a job. I'm going to do it. And like, that's how normal people, rational people should react. The, the truth is most professional politicos in Atlanta know that this is all nonsense. And they, I think, are pretty uh, embarrassed that it's all happening. 
but <laughs> the political environment that we operate in uh, insists that they either uh, shut their mouth or or go along with it. But like, you know, he has no choice. You know, he's the one in the hot seat and he's fighting back and I love it. So tell me about Georgia, because that was for me, that was the big surprise of, of election night. Uh, the, the the idea that the Georgia would actually flip um, after the Stacey Abrams case, it, it sort of looked like I mean, after her defeat back in 2018, it kind of looked like Georgia was going to be the the, the new Lucy with the football that Republicans, I mean, the Democrats would always think they had a shot, but they would never actually be able to flip that state. So what was it that you were seeing on election night that Hal Sharpton and others didn't see? Well, Sharpton was right in that black turnout wasn't necessarily as high as they were hoping. Uh, the, you know, they, the folks will always tell you they want to get to 30% of the uh, electorate is African-American. I think it came in just a little below that. But my whole view on Georgia has been colored by the suburbs. It's the area that I'm from, and so I know it best. And what I have seen as an evolution in the counties just north of Atlanta, North Fulton, Cobb, Gwinnett, uh, is they have undergone a rapid transformation. This is, this is where I first started working. Tom Price, one of the most conservative Republicans in Congress, used to carry the Georgia 6th Congressional District by 70, 75% every time and would only face nominal opposition. There wasn't even really a local Democratic Party to speak of at mm. that time. This is 15 years ago. Um, and now his seat is held by a Democrat and a Democrat who's gotten elected two times in a row now. And now Georgia's 7th Congressional District, just, just east of there um, in Gwinnett County, now controlled by a Democrat. Like there, I can't tell you how, how there really was no party to speak of for Democrats back then. And it's the suburbs. It is, it is educated, affluent areas where, you know, if you're an educated person, there's only so long that you can put up with pure incompetence. Uh, and that's, I think, what you're seeing. Uh, so the suburbs have, have been changing. They've been getting, uh, I, I guess, more moderate. I don't know that I, I, I want to call the Atlanta suburbs blue yet, Democratic yet, even though they're, they're controlled by uh, Democrats. I really think this was the, the purest example that we always talk about in the country of the suburbs changing suburbs going from, um, you know, traditional country club Republicans to just pure anti-Trump. And, and that's what, that's what turned it. Uh, there, there are, uh, women, you know, folks I know, but also just, you know, you see, you see stories everywhere, women who are just fed up with being, being talked down to, uh, and people who, you know, have a brain and, and, and look at this and say, this is not the Republican party that I signed up for. Uh, and so the suburbs were really where it turned for me on election night. Um, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't super sophisticated. Uh, you know, everybody was saying that Georgia was going in blue. The New York times needle had it at like, yeah. or going red. Um, uh, the New York times needle had it at like 85% for Trump, but none of those counties had come in yet. And you have to understand that that's where the, the, the state is, is changing. These are areas where, um, you know, my, my, hometown is, is called John's Creek. There was like a 15 point swing from the Trump vote four years ago to now. And that was replicated all over the place up there. Uh, and that, that was the story. Uh, Democrats didn't turn out as many African-Americans as they wanted. 
but they sure as heck were able to, to, to run up the numbers in those North Metro counties. Why do you think that the Democrats and Joe Biden was not able to turn out uh, African-American voters in, in Atlanta in the numbers they wanted? Because it was the same, it's the same story in Detroit. It's the same story in Milwaukee, um, where the the turnout was was just flat. I mean, it's not a huge surprise that they were not going to turn out at the levels of when Barack Obama. But, you know, think thinking about that, uh, you know, that was supposed to be the narrative, right? You know, that Stacey Abrams was going to mobilize the African-American vote to come out in these massive numbers. And that did not happen. Yeah, I think the Stacey Abrams story is a little overtold. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're a national political reporter and you talk about Georgia, you're now like required to write that Stacey Abrams has this machine and she's changed everything. It's not really the case. Um, yes, you know she has a voter registration operation, and and, and you know it, it had some effect. Um, you know, I, I don't know the answer to to why uh, African Americans didn't come. I mean, they they came out, but it, the, the election was, I think, turned just on the the anti Trump vote that that just really fired people up. Um, I think it's something that the Democrats are going to have to look into because this continues to be a problem, and it's especially going to be a problem. Uh, going into a midterm election where you often see a, a real big fallout uh, among African-American voters. So I, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I, I, I don't want to, it's not as though it, their turnout dropped. It's just right. that they, they weren't the story of, of what changed uh, what changed the state. And it's you know similar story, I think, in, in Wisconsin as well. Those suburbs around Milwaukee really, yep. really came out. Um, and and I, again, I don't think the, and you tell me, you know, obviously, you know, Wisconsin better than I do, but having, having worked for, for Paul, um, you know, I don't know that those areas are, are blue. I don't know that those are Democrats in those suburbs now. They're just sick of Donald Trump. And, and I think those are, those are areas that Republicans can win back if he's no longer on the scene. Oh, I, I think that's true. And I think if you look at the numbers, you know, for example, in the six county region that I'm in right now. There was a significant undervote for Donald Trump compared to Republicans running for Congress. So that you, had, you did have, um, and I think it was greater than the margin um, that, uh, the, that Biden won the state by, the number of people that voted for Republicans for Congress and then did not vote for Donald Trump. So those those are those are clearly again low hanging fruit for Republicans in in the in the future. Um, of course, also in Wisconsin, we had the you know this incredible turnout from uh, Dane County in Madison, which is remarkable. And then you have, you know, continued growth for, uh, you know, Trump did better in some of the rural areas. So this is one of the things that I think the Democrats have to come to grips with is that, you know, that a lot of these voters that voted for Joe Biden have not become progressives overnight. And they they are they and, and they would be potential defectors if uh, if the Democrats misread the results and moved too hard to the left. And I think that's the story down ballot, right? I think right. that is why, while Joe Biden had a relatively large, healthy electoral college win, it was a terrible night for Democrats down ballot. Uh, I mean, it, a, a ten or a, a twenty seats seat swing from what they expected in the House. You know, they were expecting to pick up 10, 15 seats and and lost ten. Nobody's this, is an ama- this is an amazing story, and I will admit that I have not paid as much attention, but you're a guy from the House. So what happened there? How could the Democrats have gotten that so wrong? And actually, a lot of the political analysts did as well. You know, everybody was just assuming there was going to be a Democratic pickup in, in the House. They, and uh, I mean, their, their, their majority is quite shaky. What, what went wrong for them? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the dirty secret is that I think Republicans are trying to figure out what happened too, because <laughs> frankly, they didn't see it coming either. 
Um, you know, I, I talked to somebody who was working on a lot of races and had a pretty uh, broad view of, of all that was going on the week before the election. And he told me, yeah, we're going to lose 10 or 12. Um, mm -hmm. But he, in the you know, looking back, what happened, I think the, the best theory that I've, I've come across, and, and it's an interesting one, um, is borne out in some polling. You often see on, on, on polling the question, who do you think is going to win? Not who do you want to win, but who do you mm -hmm. think is going to win? And in a lot of battleground districts, most battleground districts throughout the year, results would come in that those voters thought that Donald Trump was going to win. That flipped down at the very last couple of weeks of the election. I guess voters started paying attention to the polls or whatever it was, but realized that, that Joe Biden was likely going to win. And as that happened, you saw things turning towards Republicans. And I don't think anybody saw the numbers turning all the way, the way that they did. But what that tells me is that voters saw that, that Joe Biden was going to be president. You had Democrats running around everywhere talking about this big progressive agenda they are going to pass. And that scared folks. And I think that reinforces what we, we've talked about. These people who came out and, and delivered the election for Joe Biden are not progressives. They wanted to get rid of Donald Trump. They're happy to have a, a centrist president in Joe Biden, but they didn't want to sign up for full Democratic control of Washington. And they voted to provide a check on Joe Biden when they realized he was about to be president. So I think that that is, if there's a sort of undertold story, that's what happened. And, and, and look, I think Democrats got out over their skis. They were so confident they were going to win. They started talking about getting rid of the filibuster and you know, all the big things that they were going to do. I don't think anybody was signing up for that. And it's a mistake that parties always make. They always think that an election that goes their way, like the midterm two years ago, is an affirmation of their views. And so often what happens in politics is if an election goes your way, it's just somebody telling, telling you that they don't like the other guy. Uh, and, but they always misinterpret it as a mandate. And so they, I think they, they missed that here. They got a little over their skis and it scared folks. Uh, and, and so I think that that's why they did well and why there is the, the potential for another good midterm for Republicans in two years to actually take back the House. This is fascinating because I've always wondered whether or not uh, voters did think this way, wh whether or not they voted strategically or tactically in this particular way to to balance out, uh, split their tickets. Because, you know, we hadn't seen that recently. We'd you know seen a lot of straight ticket voting. But I think you're right here um, that, in fact, I don't know any other way to really interpret these results other than thinking, OK, we're going to go with Donald. We're going to go with uh, Joe Biden, but we want to make sure there's a check on him. Which, of course, brings us back to Georgia, where um, the control of the Senate is on the line. Uh, remarkable sort of you know, conjunction of the planets where you have two United States Senate seats up on the same day, January 5th, which happens to be the day before the uh, Congress meets in joint session to open up and uh, read the, you know, certify officially certify the the uh, the winner of the Electoral College. So give me your sense on, on that. Um, not being a Georgia expert, uh, the conventional wisdom that I've seen generally assumes that, that the Republicans have the edge because the Democratic vote goes down and turnout. What are you seeing happening there? Yeah, I think the Democrats, uh, or excuse me, I think Republicans do have the edge, but it's a razor thin edge. I, I really think this is, this is very much a toss up. Um, you know, if, if I had to tell you who's going to win, I would say the Republicans, but I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it um, for a few reasons. Uh, one, I, I, I don't think that um, <clears throat> uh, that 
most of these voters who came out and, and turned the state for, for Joe Biden have, it doesn't feel like they have finished sending the message. Um, there still content, seems to be a lot of enthusiasm for, uh, for John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, the two, the two Democrats running. Um, but I'll, I'll be honest, the reason I think this is mostly in play is not anything that has to do with the Democrats. It's I think Donald Trump could really screw this up for them. Uh, hmm. As you know, he has has really latched on to Georgia as the state where he thinks that there was this uh, voter fraud nonsense, and he has been pumping it out down there. And you know, as we talked about, um, has really created a bit of a civil war down there. He, uh, just this morning, he's tweeting at, at Brian Kemp multiple times. Um, the governor, the folks, the folks I've talked to down there have told me that the voters are really internalizing this idea that the election was rigged, that there was voter fraud, that Democrats will do anything to stop them. Um, all nonsense. Republicans are you know, in charge of the state and are running things. But I think he is discouraging enough voters. There's only so many times you can tell people that their vote doesn't matter before they stop showing up. And mm. with an election that is going to be so razor thin, I think that could potentially turn it. Look, I, I, I think that John Ossoff is a terrible candidate. He, he's a, he is the definition of an empty suit. He was a mid-level staffer for a backbench member of Congress and now wants to be a United States senator. Um, you know, He does a, a terrible politician impression every time he gives a, a talk <laughs> or does an interview. He's a terrible candidate. Um, and, and Raphael Warnock, I, I think they have endless stuff to, to talk about him as, as out of step with the state. If this was just a normal election and you were running a David Perdue versus a John Ossoff, David Perdue should win every single time. But if you have Democrat voters who are still fired up, if you have suburbs who feel like there's still a message to send because Donald Trump is making this election about himself instead of allowing them to just carry out a normal election, and you have him discouraging voters down there from participating in the Democratic process, that could be enough. I mean, John Ossoff only lost by two points. Um, the other race was a bit more crowded because it was a, a jungle primary. Um, but two points. Yeah. Like I could see that swinging. I, it, it, you know, you hate to say like it comes down to turnout cause that's such a cliche, yeah. but this is one of those, uh, enthusiasm elections, turn them out shirts versus skins, whose folks are going to come out. And, uh, the, the early look to me shows that the Democrats are still fired up and Republicans have uh, a bit of a food fight on their hands. Yeah. Well, the, the civil war among Republicans. So do you see the, the most likely results being two for two as opposed to a split verdict between those two races? Yeah. It's hard to see ticket splitters, right? Yeah. Um, look, Kelly Loeffler, Loeffler did not really run, has not run a, a general election campaign. She was in a primary, um, and has so closely tied herself to, to Donald Trump. And if I, you know, if, if I were going to say, you know, who's got the best matchup for Democrats, um, it's definitely Warnock versus Leffler. She, you know, at this point it's too late to even pivot. You know, I, we, I used to joke with friends, like, I can't wait to see how she tries to pivot for a general election, but it, it's past that. Um, with so much at stake, this is just a pure enthusiasm race. So yeah, I, I, I think that what she needs is to just sort of tether herself to David Perdue and have David Perdue basically recreate what he did on, on election night, you know, win by two votes or 2%. Um, and that should be enough. I just don't think there's going to be a lot of ticket splitting. It doesn't make sense. So yeah, they're going to end up running as a duo and she can actually provide some enthusiasm uh, for them because she fires up the Trump folks and he can, you know, provide a little bit of a softer edge for the, the metro counties. Well, of course, you know, one of the big questions is whether or not the, this is going to be a referendum on 
checking Joe Biden, going back to the theme of of, of wanting to uh, uh, have a have a check and balance on the president, um, which obviously Republicans would want it to be versus are we still going to be in the midst of the Trump sore loser uh, caravan? Um, and, and I know that there are a lot of Republicans, including you know folks at National Review, who are very, very concerned about all of this. You don't want to make this a a referendum on you know Trump's refusal to acknowledge the election. Uh, that's not what you want to go into. But it's hard, it's it's hard to tell what the dynamic is going to be from the outside. I mean, that's because it is it is so close. Um, I, you know. The, the, this Reverend Warnock seems to have the kind of really serious baggage problems that, as you point out, in a normal election would, I think, be almost disqualifying. Uh, how is that playing? I mean, they you know that the stuff about, you know, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, uh, you know, things that he said in the past about defunding police. These are the kinds of things that that killed Republicans down ballot everywhere else. Why should we not expect that the same thing would happen in Georgia? It feels very throwback, doesn't it? It does. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're dredging up, you know, uh, speeches he attended 20 years ago. And, um, but yeah, look, he, he is very much a, a far left progressive um, that, has, that helps him and that hurts him. There's no doubt about it. And there's no shortage of things that they can throw at him. Uh, you know, it's Ossoff as well. Like, you know, he, he, he's a terrible candidate, like I said. I think Warnock is a better candidate. I think he is, he is more charismatic. He is somebody who has the potential to to drive that that turnout that Democrats need among African Americans. But look, this this election, if if it were simplified, is you have two Democrats who are out of step with the state. They are not Joe Biden Democrats. Yeah, right. They are far left Democrats. And if the two senators are able to just make that case, explain that, point that out to people, it shouldn't be a close election. You know, I mean, relatively close. It, you know, it should be a comfortable win for Republicans, and that's why they should be favored. the The question is: Is that the campaign they're allowed to run? Are they allowed to say, "You have a, a Republican or a Democratic president, and we need to put a check on him"? And these are the two type; these two Democrats are not the type of Democrats we elect in in Georgia. Um, that's easy. That is a home run, easy win for Republicans, but. Once again, Donald Trump tends to tends to screw things up. He won't even let them say that Joe Biden is going to be the president. This is what's this is what's interesting because, of course, now conservative groups can't go out and say, "Hey, let's yeah. mobilize against the Biden agenda," because you can't even talk about a Biden agenda. You can't even acknowledge that that is a possibility. So this is part of the dynamic, and you know, it, it does also it, it's it strikes me how much loyalty they demanded from these two senators that both of them came out and called for Brad Raffensperger. We talked about before the secretary of state to resign. So it's not just that they're supportive of Trump. I mean, they are all in on, you know, this election was was, was stolen and they're attacking one of their own. So the other element that's is weird, I think, in, in Georgia politics right now is the role of QAnon. I mean, you have uh, you now have an, a, a QAnon member of uh, of, uh, of 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 Congress and uh, Leffler has gone out of her way to associate herself with it. So, you know, there is that there is the, the sort of crazification of the Republican Party in Georgia at the very moment when you are losing some of the suburban votes. It strikes me as kind of parallel to some of the things we saw happening with the Republicans in Arizona. It, it is, as a Georgian, it is deeply embarrassing. I, you know, I, I will start by saying that. 
But if you're just looking at pure politics and you need people to be fired up and have enthusiasm, which I think this is how this election is shaping up, you need all those people. And that's yeah. why she's doing that. And I, I hate it. But that, that you know, it, if, if your whole entire strategy is based on we need every single breathing human who would vote Republican to come out, you can't really alienate those people. Um, not that, you know, there's any reason so, to so believe. So QAnon becomes a, a recognized, important part of the Republican coalition going forward? QAnon? I have I, I, I don't know. Like I, yeah, I, don't. <laughs> I don't I can't really get my head around how real that that power is down there, you know, how much sway it has over folks. I don't I don't know. But I know right now, it, as a pure politics, there's no incentive for them to try to distance themselves from it or shut it down. I hate it. It's embarrassing. Um, but you know, it's it's something we're gonna have to study more because I just don't know how how big and real it is. The yeah, I mean that's the and the the assumption, of course, is that this that it does have a, a considerable constituency. But I'm trying to imagine in the future some member of the Senate or Congress standing up, somebody running for for president, let's say somebody like a Ben Sass, giving a speech denouncing uh, QAnon, denouncing crazy conspiracy theories. And the question becomes: Is that a career killer? Or does that does that define you as somebody who can bring the Republican Party back to to sanity? And I guess right now, my gut sense is it feels like it's riskier that the downside is is greater than the upside, which is kind of a depressing thought. Yeah, I mean, I I would hope to think that that is not a career killer. I I, I don't know that. um, I I imagine if you're a, a member of Congress, it's easier to just ignore it. Right. You know, let people think whatever they want to think. I'm just not going to get involved. Uh, this either goes away because, you know, it's it's supposed theory, I guess, you know, doesn't make sense anymore. Um, or it goes the other way. And Donald Trump needs attention and flirts with it for the next four years and it becomes bigger and better. I don't I don't know. I, I hate to predict. Um, I just know that um, it's it's a super unknown for Republicans down there. And given something that's so the, the stakes are so high and the election is so close, they're not going to screw with it right now. So, so here, here's here's a crazy thought that the 2024 campaign could be the Fox News candidate versus the Gateway Pundit candidate. <laughs> the, oh, the, the window of yeah, I know the window of crazy has moved so far over that Fox News will be the more normal uh, venue for the right people who are not on the right probably think we're just completely crazy here but it is interesting watching you know the one america network and uh, uh newsmax i mean th- their stuff is beyond crazy whatever you thought was the standard of crazy they're like way north of that already and if this plays out that this becomes the litmus test of loyalty to not break with the craziest conspiracy theory. That's going to have long-term consequences internally in the Republican Party, but it's going to make it much, much harder for them to reverse the erosion that you were describing in the suburbs and places like Atlanta. I think all of this is self-defeating. I I really do. And I think what Donald Trump is doing for um, himself to uh, stir up doubt about the election is is both self-defeating for Republicans right now, but for the long haul, it reinforces to me that he does not care about anybody else. He demands, as you noted, this loyalty from these Republican senators to attack their own secretary of state. And he has 
providing nothing in return. He wants pure loyalty, but does not actually give a damn about the Senate majority, about those two Republicans down there. He does not care. So anything that he throws against the wall, even if it destabilizes the country, destabilizes the party, hurts our democracy, it hurts Republican turnout, he doesn't care. As long as, as, long as it provides him a, a vehicle, a venue to espouse his crazy views, he'll take it. So do you think he'll go to Georgia to campaign for the senators? Oh, well, you know, there's travel restrictions these days. Uh, yeah. I, I do they want him? Okay, so if you're David Perdue or Kelly Loeffler, do you want him to come down? Yeah, you do. Mm-hmm. Um, look, this is a, a huge base turnout election. I think the risk of uh, the, the risk of Republicans not turning out is so high that it would overtake the risk of that inflaming those suburbs again to come out. I, I don't. I don't think they can get there without every single Trump voter um, feeling like this is a, a real race they need to pay attention to. I expect he'll probably get involved at some point, kicking and screaming. Um, but I think he. I think he has to, um, and I think it's worth it if if, if they're them. Brendan Buck, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, we appreciate hope we'll let you Hopefully, we'll have you back on the Bulwark podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening today. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will do this all over again tomorrow.